Well, I'm told that I might have evoked a bit of uh, anxiety in some of you a couple of weeks ago when I talked about change and that I didn't close the loop by making a big announcement about some cataclysmic shift we were making here at College Church. I sort of laughed this week, though, to be completely honest with you, because I had somebody in my office on Wednesday, that was 10 days after the fact, and they were still worried about the perceived change that I had been prepping everyone for. I got stopped out in the hallway this morning. People saw the microphone on my cheek, and they were like, oh, is today the day you're going to drop the bomb on us and tell us about the big change coming our way? I'm not usually the one creating the scuttlebutt around here, people. That's Steve's job. I just am on the cleanup crew. Rest assured, there is no big announcement to be made, at least not one that I'm aware of. We're not setting you all up for some big surprise to bring out at the end of this four-week emphasis on our church's culture and mission. But we do believe that if we are to remain faithful to the mission that God has given us, Jordan referenced it before, to make more and better disciples who transform the community and resource the church, then we're gonna need to consider and potentially embrace change. Not so much in our mission, but in the way we go about understanding and enacting that mission to those that we encounter in the world around us. So with that in mind, two weeks ago, we talked about the role that innovation and creativity might play in accomplishing that mission. And I've been super excited because several of you have contacted us and said, okay, so if we have these ideas, how do we share them with you? I want to tell you today that if you have been given such an idea, you can go to our website, collegewest.com, and there you'll find a resources tab and then push an idea button and you'll come up to this screen. And there you'll have an opportunity to share with us, share with us the ideas that you've been given. I can't stand up here and promise you that every one of those ideas is going to come to fruition, just to be clear. But I will tell you that we believe that God desires to use you, the people of College Church, to enact his mission here. And so we're going to listen carefully and we're going to seek God's guidance for what's ahead. So I hope that you'll check that out and share with us the ideas that God places on your heart. Last Sunday then, Steve had us consider the shift from seeing the church as the place where we primarily make disciples to places other than the church, outside of the church, that we do this disciple making. And I loved the conversation up here this morning about wonder space because this is the kind of thing we're talking about, stepping outside our walls into the community for the sake of making disciples. I think this is an incredibly important conversation for us to be having because for decades as North Americans, we've grown accustomed to thinking that the church is the place we go to in order to grow in our relationship with God. It's the place where disciples are intentionally made largely by people who have been given jobs to make them there, pastors. In recent history, I think this has become so much the church's identity that we've programmed discipleship with just about every age and demographic you could imagine in mind. We've had spiritual formation programming for youth and senior adults and single parents, recovering drug addicts, working moms, retirees, widows, widowers, divorcees, bikers, ballers, bakers, you name it, we've come up with a curriculum for how we can form them inside the church. And of course, there's nothing wrong with the church doing this, reaching out to specific groups of people with various interests and needs. But I sometimes wonder if in all of this programming, this facilitating of these niche discipleship methods, the church has unknowingly turned inside 
and forgotten that in the great commission, Jesus told us, make disciples as you are going. In the spaces and places of your everyday lives, not just inside the church. So this morning, I want us to focus in on one of those places. I think it is the most important place that God has given us for this kind of disciple-making journey, and that is our homes. Now, in a room this size, the concept of home is going to bring a whole lot of things to mind. Because for some of you, home is a place that's really familiar, where you've lived for a very long time. Others of you think of home and you immediately go to a place you visit, like for the holidays or for a special occasion. Some of you would tell me that home is an extremely busy place filled with the bustle of crying or laughing children 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But others of you are empty nesters. And so home is this quiet place of serene tranquility. Can't quite imagine this, but I'm told it's so. For some of us, home is a space that we own and we care for. But for some of us, home is a place that we temporarily and transiently occupy, a space we rent or lease, like an apartment or a condominium. I love it when I have appointments with college students and I get text messages from them when we're supposed to be meeting that says, I'm going to be a minute late. I got to stop by home before I meet you. Because in that moment, they're not talking about the place that they hail from, somewhere far away like... Moline or Milwaukee, they're talking about their dorm room, which is a space that they have adopted as home for a specific season of their lives. So no matter what picture is conjured up in your mind when you think about the concept of home, I think we could agree that some specific things are true of our homes. First of all, home is the place where memories are formed. Some good, some not so good. Homes are the place where habits are formed in us, again, for better or for worse. And homes are places where we have significant interactions and conversations with other people. Home is the place where we have been shaped and formed into the people we are today. I find this to be especially evident when I ask somebody to share with me their testimony or their spiritual story Because it seems like nine times out of 10, the home is one of the first places in a person's spiritual journey. They, for some of us, we say things like, well, I was raised in a Christian home, so it's a positive experience. We talk about how faith was modeled for us in our homes, how we were encouraged in our spiritual pursuit. But others of us don't have that same frame of reference, and yet we still refer to home early on in telling our story. But we might say things like, well, Uh, I didn't have a nurturing home experience. No one in my home had faith, and so I had to go away from home in order to find and pursue Jesus Christ. Whatever the case might be for you, I hope we could agree on the significance and the impact that someone's home has on them, spiritually speaking. The home is a place that is either forming or deforming in our pursuit of God. And so as I considered that this past week, it occurred to me, isn't it interesting that as we read through the Gospels, we see time and time again where a significant portion of Jesus's ministry happened not in the synagogue or the temple, but in people's homes? Jesus, the Messiah, was anointed in the home of Simon the leper, This was the son of God, so certainly you could argue that the temple would have been a far more appropriate place for that to happen. 
And yet here we read of it happening in someone's everyday common dining room. Jesus taught in the synagogues and on mountainsides where many people were gathered and could listen to him, but he also taught in the home of Mary and Martha. He didn't just wave Martha off and tell her to wait until the next big town gathering in the square where he would then teach. No, he received her invitation to come into her home and he seized the opportunity to instruct and guide those who had gathered in that space. How about the time Jesus raised the synagogue leader's child from the dead in his home? I think about this. What an amazing opportunity for Jesus to display his power Why on earth didn't he wait till the day of the child's funeral and then walk in and drop the mic? Here you go. Everybody can see my power. He didn't do that. He went into this man's home where people were grieving and he cleared the room of everyone except those who lived there and he raised this child from the dead. And then he told all who were gathered there not to go blather these things, but to hide them in their hearts and to allow them to form and inform their journeys in the days to come. Time after time, we read of Jesus healing the sick and the wounded in homes. And in doing so, he wasn't just curing people of their ailments. He was informing their understanding of who he was and what he was here to accomplish And he didn't do this so often in public forums, but in living rooms and dining rooms and bedrooms, places where people were living out the vast majority of their moments and days on this earth. So I would argue that Jesus understood and modeled the formational potential of the home. And if you're not yet convinced, consider this for a moment. Even at the times when Jesus was in the public forum, performing his ministry, miracles, and teachings, what was the most common instruction he gave the people that he had just served? Go home. Go tell the people that you are closest to, those you live daily life with, what has happened here and how your interaction with the Son of God has changed and transformed you. So the centrality of the home to Jesus' ministry is striking to me. And yet as I considered that this week, I thought, why has this never occurred to me before? Because Jesus was, after all, a Jewish rabbi who grew up in a Jewish home. And at the center of Israel's history was the home. It was the primary place where the story of their origin as God's chosen people and of his ongoing work of healing and redeeming them had been communicated from generation to generation. This was indicated in the instructions given to Israel that we just heard read in the book of Deuteronomy, that the primary place for the shaping and forming of the faith wasn't some extraordinary public gathering. Moses wasn't prescribing a liturgy here for a worship service or giving us a syllabus for a Bible class or even outlining a sermon. He's instructing the people of Israel to take ownership of the spiritual formation and development of those in their most immediate and intimate spheres of influence, their families. And he told them to do so not just in the public realm or places where there were trained professionals to help them do such things. He was encouraging his people to be diligent in framing the common spaces of their lives for the sake of spiritually forming the next generation, to use their homes for this purpose. 
So then fast forward to a day centuries later when Jesus, who grew up in this kind of environment, is pressed by leaders of the religious law to declare which is the greatest commandment. And without hesitation, he declares a portion of that passage that we just heard read from the Torah, the Shema. And as a Jewish child, this would have been a verse that I think he would have recited every morning and every night alongside his brothers and sisters at the instruction of his parents. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This proclamation, the Shema, is the encapsulation of the greater covenant that God had made with his chosen people. It's known by many as the heart of the law of God. And yet in declaring this, Jesus wasn't laying down some religious moral code. He was perpetuating the covenant relationship that had been established by God with Israel and that was intended for far more than just those who were gathered around Moses that day. This was a covenant made to generations. Generations that included Jesus and generations that include you and me here today. So Moses' instructions were far from simple here. He was specific in telling parents and grandparents to impress these commandments upon your children and your grandchildren. And that word impress is really significant because it's the word that we use when we talk about something being etched or engraved into a hard surface like marble or granite. It implies something that is deeply ingrained or embedded He continued then with his encouragement saying, talk about this covenant when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. This isn't passive language and it's certainly not confined to one place or one particular hour of the week. Moses is saying everything, in everything that you do, in the most common spaces where you are doing the most mundane activities of your life, the job of discipling the next generation of believers is your responsibility. And it should permeate everything that you do. This was an all-encompassing mandate that we're receiving here. Because Moses was establishing a pattern and a precedence for discipleship in these words. He was calling each of us to claim responsibility for the passing on of the faith to those who would come behind us and to do so largely in the places where we live out those common everyday moments of our lives. So what on earth does this have to do with our church culture and our mission? Well, let me ask you, What kind of disciple-making space is your home? No matter what kind of home you have, whether it's temporary or permanent, whether one generation lives there or four, how are you specifically and intentionally using that space to strengthen a new generation of disciples? Have you ever even considered your home for that purpose, at least as its primary purpose? Because that's a really important consideration to make. Because remember earlier we said the home has forming or deforming potential. I spent some time looking through studies on youth discipleship this week and I found one that was especially troubling to me. It concluded two things. Number one, 
Children are more likely to have vibrant faith if the parents aren't Christians than if the parents are Christians, go to church, and don't act as the primary discipler. Secondly, this study concluded that children are more likely to have vibrant faith if parents are Christians but don't go to church than if the parents who are Christians go to church and don't act as the primary disciplers. In other words, the next generation has a better chance of having a lasting faith if their parents aren't Christians and never go to church than if they are Christians, regularly go to church, but then abdicate the responsibility of discipling their children to the church. This is sobering stuff. Because the bottom line here is that even if you are devout in bringing your children or your grandchildren or your neighbors to church week in and week out, the formation that can occur in this place will only be as lasting and impacting as it is reinforced in the places and spaces where they live out a far greater majority of their lives. If the interactions and the inputs they receive at home contradict or downplay what they're taught inside the church, then the pill you have to swallow is that in essence, they are being deformed. Ouch. The good news here is that if the things that your children and grandchildren and neighbor children, any of the next generation who are here with us, if the things they are learning are being um, modeled and reinforced by the daily living out of the covenant of God in the home, then the etching of God into that surface of their lives will become deeper and more keenly embedded. And ultimately, that's how the next generation of disciples is created and formed. So one of the specific missional convictions that our board and staff have leaned into this year is to strengthen the next generation of disciples that have been entrusted to us. And in recent years, this has become quite an entrustment. I don't know if you're aware of this, but on any given Sunday, we have over 300 children and teens here at College Church and another 350 plus college students who are a part of our congregation. And so, of course, as leaders of the church, we're working hard to do all we can to provide programming and ministry that is formative and shaping to these young people. We believe in the power of the weekly gathering of God's people, in intergenerational worship and an age-appropriate discipleship, in serving, along other serving alongside other members of the body of Christ. These things are imperative to the life of a believer, of a disciple. But we also believe that if we are committed to our mission of making more and better disciples, then we're gonna have to be more intentional and assertive in employing the home as the primary place, the integral core of discipleship for our next generation. Because the home is the nucleus of spiritual development. And yet I worry that somehow over time we've become disoriented or detached from Jesus's model of the home as the principal discipling place. We've put the primary responsibility on discipleship uh, on the church, on pastors and services and programs housed within these walls, and then we've expected those entities to independently raise our children, spiritually speaking. The church is absolutely needed in the life of every believer. I, I believe that to my core but I wonder if in the spirit of the Shema and in the call to pass along our faith from generation to generation, some of us today need to consider a reforming of our homes 
for the sake of disciple making. So how do we do that? I think for some of us, we might need to restructure how we spend our time at home. (laughs) Maybe some of us need to prioritize actually being there in the first place. This has been incredibly convicting to me this week, you guys. Because the truth is I can get busy with everything else in my life, everywhere else in my life, and find myself wondering, when was the last time I prioritized inhabiting this holy space that I've been given for purposes other than sleep and storage? What if we reoriented ourselves to the potential contribution that could be made in somebody's spiritual life in that space if we just made ourselves present there more often? It's a crazy idea, but we might have to schedule that time, put it into our calendars, and recognize that by being present and intentional with how our time is spent, we have the possibility of embodying the relational model of ministry in the home that Jesus set for us. Some of us need to be more intentional about what we're doing at home. And I hope you'll hear me out on this one because I think it's wonderful that so many of our people um, invite uh, Bible studies and uh, discipleship groups and accountability groups, all these wonderful things in the home. Keep doing that. That's really, really important. But what I'm talking about in considering differently what you're doing in the home is asking yourself, how can I be more intentional just about doing the normal stuff of my life in a purposeful, disciple-making way? How does the way I go about carrying out the daily activities of my life intersect and reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are in that space with me? What conversations could I have with my children as we wash dishes together each night? How about this one? This was my conviction this week. What would happen if I, what was the spiritual potential if I spent more time sitting on my front porch, letting my neighbors and my neighborhood children know that I'm there and I'm interested in having a relationship with them. What could happen in that space? Or what is being formed or deformed by the way I enter my house at the end of a long, hard day at work? Because it's in those moments and in those activities, as I said, that things are being formed or deformed in the people who share that space with us. No matter what message a person, specifically a young person, hears here within the walls of this building, if it's not modeled in the home, it likely won't be enacted in the future. That study I mentioned earlier really ended on a low note because it said that they've concluded over 89% of evangelical teenagers today leave the church after they graduate from high school. 89%. Not because they hate the church or they had some terrible experience, but because they can't reconcile what they've been taught there with what's been happening in their homes as they've grown up by the very parents, grandparents, and neighbors who took them to church in the first place. It reminded me of a sentence written by Alice Walker who said, look closely at the present you are constructing it should reflect the future of which you are dreaming. How are you spending time at home? What are you doing in your home? And finally, some of us need to put that innovative spirit that we talked about two weeks ago to work and reimagine the discipleship potential of our homes altogether. 
That could be something simple like rearrange the furniture in your house so that you're facilitating interaction with one another rather than isolation. Point chairs at each other instead of at the screen. These are the kinds of things that can stimulate discipleship in your home. Maybe you need to open up your home to other people. Many of you are a part of a small group, a discipleship group here at this church, but how many of us say, oh, let's just meet at Starbucks or we'll meet in a classroom at the church because then nobody has to get their home ready for group. But that home has a significant bearing on what happens within that group that is spiritually trying to encourage one another. So challenge yourself in these ways. Some of you probably need to do something a little more extreme and you're probably the ones right now who are a little bit checked out. You're thinking to yourself, well, I live alone or I don't have any more children in my house so this doesn't really apply to me. But I wanna tell you a story that I hope encourages you to think differently. I have two friends, Shirley and David Duncan. Some of you know them, I know. And if you don't know them, uh, they live in Macon, Georgia. They're a couple in their 60s, have three grown children, and they live in a typical Macon, Georgia neighborhood. In many ways, they are quintessential empty nesters. David has been disabled for a number of years, and so he works at home every day doing various projects. And one day while he was at home going about his routine, there was a, uh, the doorbell rang, and he went to the door, opened it to find a young elementary school boy standing there, dripping with sweat, panting, looking very hot, and asking for a drink of water. David tells me he's learned that many of the children in their neighborhood find themselves in the summer months locked out of their homes in the afternoon. They return home from summer camp or summer school. Parents aren't home yet from work, and so they play outside in the yards. But in Georgia, in the middle of July, this is a pretty warm environment. And so on that particular day, David went and got a cup of ice water and handed it to the boy. He sat down on the stoop, and so David sat down next to him and started to hear his story. He says he'd never seen that boy before in his neighborhood, didn't know he existed before that day, but as he listened to the boy talk about his home and his school, he said the Lord said to him, you are far from done in terms of raising up the next generation of disciples. The following Friday night, David pulled out his grill in the front yard and he made hot dogs for all these kids that were coming by in his neighborhood. Some of their parents stopped by and he and Shirley started to get to know more of their neighbors and listen to what it was like to raise children in this environment, what they needed in terms of support. And today the hot dog club meets weekly at Shirley and David's house. They meet for a hot meal before the weekend. David and Shirley say they don't provide these meals. People from all over the world send money and gift cards. People deliver food to their house on Friday nights knowing this is happen, happening. They send each kid home with a bag full of supplies like hygiene products and school supplies, snacks for the weekend. Again, they don't provide any of it anymore. People just send them stuff all the time. And every week, they sit the kids down and they explain a Bible story. They get the kids up and have them enact the story so that it is ingrained in who they are. They currently have 21 kids attending each week. And they continue to anticipate more growth as the Lord provides. But what's striking to me about this story is that the Duncans aren't waiting for the church to take over this ministry. They're busy being the church 
in their home to young people who may have had no other opportunity to intersect with the gospel of Jesus outside of what's taking place in this empty nest, (laughs) this place where children have long since moved through but are now once again being discipled. Rosa Parks once said that each person must live life as a model for others. It seems to me that far too often we limit the truth and the power of that concept to the public realm, to the stages and the large-scale forums of our lives. And in so doing, we forget the places that we've been given to most deeply impress and influence others, our homes. So I wonder how might God help us, College Wesleyan Church, create more disciples, more and better disciples, who transform the community and resource the church if we started tapping in to the kingdom building potential of these sacred spaces, our homes. As we close this morning, I'm gonna pray for you, but before we do that, I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and I want you to do a little bit of a visualization exercise, all right? Go there with me just for a minute. Close your eyes and see the space that you call home. Whatever it may look like, see it in detail. See the rooms and the spaces. And as you do, see the people who inhabit that space with you. Those may or may not be people who live in that space, but they're people that you have been entrusted with for some type of relationship in that location. And as that picture crystallizes in your mind, Would you take a moment and ask God to reveal to you how you might claim and mobilize that space for the purpose of making more and better disciples? Lord, you are good. Your mercy endures forever, your faithfulness to all generations. And as we desire to play a role in the sharing of your story and your love with those who come behind us, we ask that you would give us new vision and inspiration for the ways our homes might be used for your glory and your purposes. God, help us to create not just spaces where we live, but rather places that intentional discipleship is happening, where we are testifying to your great work and where we are impressing upon those who enter the rooms and hallways a sense of your ongoing redemption and transformation. We ask these things in the name of Jesus who modeled for us the power of the home and who makes his home in us today. Amen.